This is Monday Morning QB, December 6th, 2021. I'm Askiya Mohammed. Today on the show, the infrastructure legislation and its impact. Quietly, Latin America is removing its shackles imposed by the United States. Pandemic panic pushed gun sales. And what do folks on the street want from the Biden administration this holiday season? All that and more. Stay with us. Last week, the first major investment of federal funds from the recently passed infrastructure bill was announced. On Thursday, the Environmental Protection Agency released more than $7 billion to state governments and tribes to upgrade drinking and wastewater systems. In a letter sent to governors that same day, EPA Administrator Michael Regan stated that it was critical that these investments are delivered in the most equitable way. The Biden administration has promised that racial equity will be a core focus of its infrastructure package. But to do that will mean overcoming a powerful history that led to just the opposite outcome. Sue Goodwin reports. To understand how infrastructure has made racial inequality worse in this country, one of the most powerful examples to examine is how our nation's highway system was built. That point was acknowledged by Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg in an interview earlier this year with the GRIOS Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief April Ryan when Buttigieg spoke about how decisions would be made about where to invest infrastructure spending. And we've got to make sure we're doing that equitably, especially knowing that it was often in black and brown communities that there was either a failure to invest and you didn't have a good road or transit system in, in a certain neighborhood, or the investment came through in the wrong way, like a highway dividing a black neighborhood in two. There's been a lot of that in the American. And doctor. the interstate system, the interstate system was built to keep certain groups yeah. in and certain groups out. So it was built right. on a racist system, correct? Yeah, often this wasn't just uh, an act of neglect. Often this was a conscious choice. There is racism physically built into some of our highways. To get a better understanding of exactly why these decisions were made and the depth of their impact, we turned to Deborah Archer. She is ACLU National Board President and Professor of Clinical Law and Co-Faculty Director at the Center of Race, Inequality, and the Law at New York University's School of Law, and an expert on this very topic of highways and racial equity. Just over a year ago, she wrote an article for the Vanderbilt Law Review titled White Men's Roads Through Black Men's Homes, Advancing Racial Equity Through Highway Reconstruction. Archer's article goes into great depth on the profound impact the nation's highway system has had on black communities. It's a story that takes us back more than six decades to the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. What we have seen is that following the passage of the Interstate Highway Act, the nation's highways were built through and around black communities, destroying them or creating physical barriers to integration or physically entrenching uh, racial inequality that was there. And much of that was by design. 
in communities around the country, federal and state highway builders purposely targeted black communities to make way for these um, massive highway projects. And they destroyed um, black homes, churches, schools, and businesses. And sometimes they leveled entire communities. In the end, as Archer explains, construction of the interstate highway system played a key role in creating the spatial, social, and economic conditions that we continue to see in urban centers today. And those are conditions that influence interracial interactions, economic mobility, intergenerational wealth, health, and also community stability. Uh, So while the highways, as I said, connected white people living in suburbia with economic opportunities in the city, black residents were excluded from those white neighborhoods. So when the highways destroyed their homes, paying them little or nothing for the destruction of their most valuable asset, black residents were forced to find new housing in communities that were already intensely segregated by race and class, and that further entrenched racial segregation. Some people who could not or did not want to move remained in the hollowed-out communities that were adjacent to the highways, and they tried to rebuild. And those communities and their residents also bear marks of decades of accumulated disadvantage. Asked to cite an example to illustrate the racial impact of highway decisions, Deborah Archer talks about the decision made in the 1960s to build Interstate 81 through downtown Syracuse, New York. When Interstate 81 was built in Syracuse, it cut through the city's urban center and really decimated a primarily Black and Jewish neighborhood called the 15th Ward. And when the displaced Black residents from the 15th Ward moved to other city neighborhoods, white residents fled to the suburbs. And as those middle and upper class residents moved to the suburbs, low-income people of color remained trapped in the city, living next to the highway and experiencing a lack of investment in their community. And today, Syracuse has the highest rate of black concentrations of poverty in the nation and has few businesses. They have a lack of economic opportunity, poor quality schools, uh, and they have violence. And housing for poor families remains crowded around I-81's elevated overpass. Nearly two-thirds of black people and about 62% of Latinx people in Syracuse live in those high-poverty neighborhoods. Now, what's important to note here is that many of these outcomes that followed from highway construction were not unexpected. As Deborah Archer explains, much of the way the nation's highway system targeted black communities was by design, design that was heavily influenced by the segregationist politics of the times. Yeah, definitely to reinforce and create uh, more segregation. I think the officials who built the the highway system in the 50s and 60s were often motivated explicitly by racism. And so first, I think the highways were a tool of removal uh, to remove black communities. In states around the country, the highway became the tool that white government officials had been looking for uh, to remove black communities. And the destruction of a black community to make way for I-95 in Miami provides, I think, an, an example of how construction of the highway system was used to actualize a racial agenda to destroy black communities. And so I-95 tore through the center of Overtown, which was a large and vibrant black community that was then considered to be the center of economic and cultural life for black people living uh, in and around Miami. 
And again, it was the realization of a decades-long campaign by white business leaders to remove black residents and claim that land to expand Miami's central business district. And by the late 1960s, after the highways was constructed, Overtown was dominated by the highway, and there really was no evidence of why it was once called the Harlem of the South. So here we are today, about to embark on what Secretary Buttigieg described in his confirmation hearing as a generational opportunity to transform infrastructure. And how do we do that in a way that does not repeat the mistakes of the past? To that end, Deborah Archer argues for the use of what are called racial equity impact studies that are done before decisions are made about how to rebuild our nation's infrastructure. Yeah, I believe in the potential of racial equity impact statements. Racial equity impact statements and studies not only identify potential racial disparities for a project, but also can identify the often invisible historical influences systemic inequalities, structures, institutions that interact to create uh, racial disparities. And these studies can help move decision makers beyond their traditional focus on intentional racial bias um, by discrete actors to a more productive focus on identifying, alleviating, and eliminating all sources of structural and systemic racial inequality that are going to be revealed through um, uh, this project. So I believe that federal, state, and local agencies planning highway redevelopment projects could complete multi-agency, multi-domain, and regionally focused racial equity impact studies prior to developing and implementing uh, their plan. And this would allow jurisdictions to think creatively and broadly about the harms impacted communities confront in the face of highway redevelopment projects, as well as the range of interventions available to resolve them equitably. Deborah Archer, Professor of Clinical Law and Co-Faculty Director of the Center of Race, Inequality, and the Law at New York University School of Law. You can find out more about the work she does there by visiting its.law.nyu.edu. And keep an eye out for her book to be published next year, on how infrastructure decisions play into creating and locking in racial inequality. It is tentatively titled, The Other Side of the Track. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Racial equity isn't the only focus of the bipartisan spending bill. Climate looms large, with billions of dollars invested in electric vehicles and charging stations, carbon capture, and infrastructure resiliency. It represents the largest climate-related spending package in U.S. history. But is it enough? Chris Banger-Drowns has more. Transportation is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, larger than both energy production and industry. Cars and trucks comprise a whopping 82% of those transportation emissions, underscoring the need for a deep reform of how our country moves goods and people. 
The bipartisan bill should help shift the U.S. towards less emission-intensive transportation, like trains, and make cars and trucks cleaner, while also funding projects to harden transportation infrastructure against the effects of climate change. Kevin DeGood is director of infrastructure policy at the Center for American Progress. He says climate resiliency funding, such as that in the bill's PROTECT program, is a good start, but is not the comprehensive climate approach we so desperately need. We need to be cognizant of the fact that we have to work on both mitigation and adaptation at the same time. So we've got to try to reduce emissions as much as we possibly can, as quickly as we possibly can, um, but at the same time recognize that the carbon and, and other greenhouse gases that have been emitted into the atmosphere to date have unleashed processes of climate change that are going to continue and they're going to get worse. So we know we have to do both, but, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that getting carbon down as quickly as possible uh, has got to be our top priority. It seems like the adaptation efforts in the bipartisan bill are fairly broad, right? A lot of a lot of GOP-controlled states will be receiving funding for resiliency projects through the bill. And I'm I'm curious, does this explain why the bill received the bipartisan support that it did? And and does it perhaps offer a roadmap for future bipartisan policy around climate? I would like to say yes, but I think in my heart the answer to that is no. I, I don't get the sense that this is the start of longer-term cooperation around climate. Um, and in part, we see you know Republicans' fierce opposition to the Build Back Better bill, where the bulk of the climate-related you know expenditures would occur. Um, that that doesn't fill me with a lot of hope. But we also need to recognize that while there are some specific pots of money in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that are directly labeled as being about reducing greenhouse gases or improving the resiliency of the system, the other programs that maybe don't have those explicit labels have a great deal of flexibility in them, which is to say states could choose to use their you know, regular uh, formula dollars. Those are money that comes to them from the U.S. Department of Transportation. They don't have to apply for it. It just comes every year. And that's the bulk of the money that's in this bill. They could use those dollars to try to design and build projects that are more resilient, that sort of use the most up-to-date engineering standards around resiliency and also try to use the best, you know, modeling data around um, temperatures and precipitation and extreme weather. So there's nothing preventing states from being even more aggressive. We should think of the money in programs like PROTECT as really being um, the floor and not the ceiling of what states can and should do. In a report on land use that you published this summer, you make the point that not all road systems are, are equally efficient or inefficient at, at moving people and goods. Can you talk to our listeners about this comparison that you made between road systems in Ohio and Washington, D.C., and how this new federal funding could be used to boost road efficiency? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was trying to get at the point that what we build strongly influences the travel behavior that we all engage in every day and how productive and efficient our transportation systems are. And we can do this as a, as a quick exercise looking at D.C. Um, as compared to Ohio. So, for instance, in Ohio, there are roughly 45 residents for every lane mile of highway in the state. And in D.C., there are about 205 residents for every lane mile in the state. And what that means is that the system in D.C. is fundamentally more productive. So every single day, each lane mile is 
able to support more economic activity. It isn't to say that the people in D.C. are more productive than the people in Ohio, just that there are fewer inputs going into that that production. Um, but we also see some other markers that really show a big difference. For instance, in Ohio, roughly 83% of residents drive alone to work and only 4% take transit, bike, or walk. In D.C., um, roughly 34% drive alone and 53% take transit, bike, or walk. Now, those are enormous differences. And it really just has to do with the fact that D.C. has built a system that is so much um, more conducive to not having to drive to meet all of your daily mobility needs. And, and a lot of it just comes down to choices about what to build. When you build infrastructure for cars, you get more driving. When you build infrastructure for people, and that includes transit and biking and walking and other new technologies like shared bikes or scooters or, or other mobility, that's what you get. And so it really is this long game of thinking about what kind of system you want to have in the future, what kind of community you're trying to build, and then making investments that align with that. But we have to understand that the built environment really does exert a powerful influence on how we use the system. I'll give you one last thing. So I live in DC. Um, My wife and I have a car. It has only about 28,000 miles on it, and we've had it for almost six years. And that's not because of any particularly strong environmental commitment on our part. It's just because it's easy not to have to use a car to get around in D.C. So it, it really does matter what we build. And just as a quick follow-up, is there anything in the bill that incentivizes states uh, or D.C. for that matter to use funding for road and bridge repair in a way that improves road efficiency, you know, using this resident per road mile metric? Mm. No, um, states retain a great deal of control over those formula dollars. Ultimately, they have the discretion to choose which projects they do and don't invest in. And so we should think about the federal program on the highway side in particular as being, it functions a little bit like a block grant. It has a broad suite of eligibilities, but states are the ones that make those decisions. So in some states, Um, Their governors and DOT directors will choose to prioritize asset repair and the overall state of repair of their transportation system will improve. And in other states, they'll continue to ignore repair projects and charge headlong into system expansion, in part because the political economy of transportation tends to reward elected officials for building new shiny things as opposed to repairing the old stuff. And those states will continue to have systems that are, you know, in a bad state of disrepair. So unfortunately, this bill didn't include some of the policy reforms that would have held states more accountable for improving the overall um, conditions in the system. But it's it's at least hoped that states will do the right thing with these dollars. We'll have to see, though. The the status quo is not always the best. You make the point that expanding road systems or improving road systems will inevitably induce more driving, which of course induces more greenhouse gas emissions. And it seems like that could be mitigated in part by some of the funding in the bipartisan bill going towards electric vehicle charging stations, which could incentivize people to purchase cars that don't emit greenhouse gases. Is it possible to gauge at this point whether these sort of competing provisions are a net positive or negative for the climate? I think it's too early to say what the net effect on total greenhouse gas emissions will be as a result of the infrastructure bill. 
and simply because we don't know how states are going to choose to use these dollars if they continue to use them as they have in the past with um, you know aggressively trying to expand highways we know that you know cars and trucks that run on uh, gasoline and diesel are going to predominate in our vehicle fleet for a long time and that that means we're going to have increasing emissions states could choose to make more balanced investments in transit that try to you know encourage infill and density and and non-auto based trips. Um, obviously, we think that's super important, but I think it's too early to tell. I would note though that that's one of the reasons why passing the Build Back Better bill, sometimes called the Reconciliation Bill, is so important because it has a much larger percentage of the expenditures in that bill that are focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions than were in the infrastructure bill. And so I think that's why it's it's really a one-two combination, and that's why it's critical for Democrats to pass that bill later this year. Lastly, you know, I get the sense that a lot of progressives thought that there was a real chance to pass the bipartisan bill and the reconciliation bill at the same time, and that opportunity clearly passed. And it's it's unclear whether, you know, the conservative Democrats in the Senate will support the reconciliation bill as it, as it currently stands, assuming the worst case scenario and the build back better plan completely flops and doesn't pass in any form, where would the U S stand then in relation to its climate goals? Well, the Biden administration has re-engaged and recommitted to the Paris agreement. And I think that's a fantastic first step. And what we've seen is that there are a lot of good um, progressive governors that have become very aggressive in terms of advancing climate within their states. Certainly a number of mayors are doing the same thing. And the Build Back Better um, Act, I don't think we should assume that it's not going anywhere. In fact, I'm more optimistic about it now than I've been in a while. I do think there's a fair amount of momentum, and I think that they're going to get it passed um, before the end, maybe not before the end of this year. I don't know if I were quite that far, but I think in the next few months that bill is going to pass and that's going to give us that double-barreled approach to tackling it. That's Kevin DeGood, Director of Infrastructure Policy at the Center for American Progress. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. In recent weeks, we have seen many exonerations of innocent prisoners in the headlines. Sometimes the innocent have literally spent decades behind bars. Correctly, we have applauded them and welcomed them back into society. But there is one legendary 12-string guitar-playing blues musician who received multiple prison pardons and commutations from Southern governors, once for even killing someone. On this date in 1949, Hudy William Ledbetter, Led Belly, departed this life at the age of 61. His was a colorful career in which he was often billed as the singing convict, and where he sometimes appeared on stage wearing prison stripes. Inducted posthumously into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, 
Lead Belly's songs covered a wide range of genres and topics, including agriculture and climate, gospel, blues, women, liquor, prison life, and racism, and folk songs about cowboys, prison work, sailors, cattle herding, and dancing. His songs like Good Night Irene, The Bourgeois Blues, and Cotton Fields are truly iconic, as is this Prisoner's Lament, Midnight Special. Yonder come a Miss Rose, I in the world do you know? Well, I know about a April, and the dress she wore, I'm a river on the shoulder, she's a paper in her hand. That's the governor, he's trying to lose a man, let the midnight special shine light on me. Let the midnight special shine a light on me. When you get up in the morning, when that big bell rings, you go to march to the table. The same damn thing, nothing poker on the table, there's nothing in my pain. Never said a thing about it. Have a trouble with the main, let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine a ever loving light on me. Well, I went to the nation and the territory. Well, I love Lives in Mexico Let the midnight special Shine a light on me Let the midnight special Shine a ever-loving light on me You ever, ever go to Houston Boys, you better walk right And you better not squabble And you better not fight Bass and Bronco will arrest you Painting boom will take you down. You get the bitch your bottom dollar and a change of rebound. Let a midnight special shine a light on me. Let a midnight special shine a ever-loving light on me. Well, jumping little Judy, she was a mighty fine girl. Well, Judy brought jumping. To this whole round world where she brought it in the morning Just a wild for day She brought me the news That my wife was dead That started me to grieve And hollering and crying And I began to worry About a very long time Let the midnight special Shine a light on me this means more than you will ever know. And it is because our people in this very difficult and turbulent times must always remember that we don't walk this earth alone and that we have committed whether it was in the failed attempt of the West Indies Federation 
or whether it is in the current incarnation of CARICOM that we have committed that we will always treat each other better than we treat anyone else because we are one family with one destiny. That was Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados, speaking last Monday. With much fanfare, Barbados officially became a republic that day. In a ceremony that replaced Queen Elizabeth II as head of state with an elected president. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the Western Hemisphere, Honduras, Peru, Bolivia, even Mexico, and other Latin American countries are also shedding some of their colonial ties to the United States. But with much less ado, in part according to Medea Benjamin, co founder of Code Pink. Women for Peace, in part because of the exaggerated attention here given to Middle East politics. I think we're seeing a new wave of progressives coming to power in Latin America that is very exciting. The win in Honduras is so important to counter the coup that the U.S. supported and allow the Hondurans to reestablish a um, democracy in their country, and this comes on the heels of other wins in Latin America. Uh, we saw that a very progressive working-class candidate, Pedro Castillo, uh, won in Peru. We see that in Bolivia, they were able to turn back the tide of a, a coup against Evo Morales, uh, bringing back in a progressive government there. Um, the losses that took place in, in Latin America recently were by very small margins. Uh, in Mexico, we see uh, the uh, progressive president there, while he has had to bend in a number of areas to the United States around uh, immigration issues, he has taken a, a, a progressive stance in a number of foreign policy issues. Um, uh, and uh, has been a, a great supporter of non-U.S. intervention in places like Cuba. Uh, speaking of Cuba, we've seen the U.S. and its uh, right-wing Cuban Americans trying very hard to um, uh, uh, regime change after 60 years in, in, uh, of efforts in Cuba, uh, coming to naught when they're supposed November 15th uprising was going to take place and didn't happen. Uh, and perhaps most important for the future of Latin America, we see uh, the possibility of Lula in Brazil coming back into power. And given the uh, immense strength of Brazil in the uh, continent, uh, that would be a game changer. In addition to Brazil, uh, what are are there any other best chances for making um, uh, progressive change and or at least setting back some of the repressive regimes? Well, yes. I mean, certainly there are chances in uh, in Chile. We see a um, the uh, a, a movement in Latin America to to stop seeing the organization of American states as the arbiter of uh, what is uh, happening in uh, the region. Uh, the Organization of America's States was the one that 
uh, really set the Bolivia coup in motion uh, that has been proven afterwards um, was just a manipulation on the part of the organization American States. And I think it's uh, lost a lot of its prestige and the Mexican president AMLO has uh, suggested that uh, it should be replaced by an uh, organization SELEC that doesn't include uh, the United States in it, and there's mounting uh, support for that to happen. In fact, um, the recent uh, re-election of Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua um, is talk about Nicaragua leaving the Organization of American States as well. Uh, so I think that um, the shift is not only in individual countries, it's a shift in uh, the region and a stronger call for independence from the United States. When you mentioned Chile, that's been a like ground zero for repression in the region for more than 50 years. That really would be a ground, a game changer, wouldn't it? Well, yes, and it's also ground zero for the imposition of the neoliberal model uh, that followed the uh, coup against Allende in Chile and was then replicated throughout the region and caused so much damage in people's lives. And that is what is important to overturn. I mean, the uh, bringing of new governments uh, is really just to change the economic calculations of who benefits, distribution of wealth, uh, who's in control of the uh, commanding heights of the economy, um, whether privatization is the order of the day or the uh, what benefits the people is uh, the determinant factor. Uh, and all of this becomes more important in the light of COVID and the economic hits that the region has taken, uh, not just around the healthcare issues, but the economic devastation that's come from the shutdown of economies. So um, it's a, 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 the economic situation in Latin America is, is going to be very difficult, uh, no matter who is in power, but it's a time for uh, reorganization at the economic level. And this is difficult, as Kia, because uh, even in the places where progressives have come to power, in many cases, they don't control their national assemblies. And that means it will be very difficult for them uh, whether we're talking about the case of Pedro Castillo in Peru uh, or we're talking about the recent win uh, uh, of um, Diomato Castro in Honduras, uh, if they don't control the uh, their assemblies, uh, they're not able to make the kind of uh, economic changes that would benefit the people, and then people see them as not coming through with their promises. So it is a... Uh, a hopeful time, but it's also a dangerous time. Where are the places that the danger of uh, a right-wing resurgence and overthrow take place? Well, we see that all over. Uh, in the case of Bolivia, uh, there's a, a very strong movement of the right-wing uh, trying to create another coup, and the Bolivian government has uh, been 
working with grassroots to mobilize against a coup there uh, in um, the case of, of Honduras. I mean, we saw how a coup was carried out against the husband of Xiomara Castro, uh, and certainly the right-wing forces there are not uh, going to rest. Um, we see in the case of uh, Cuba and Venezuela how the Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans uh, in the U.S. Uh, have really upped their uh, ante and have tremendous influence within the Biden administration, uh, which means that the policies of Biden uh, have been no different from Trump when it comes to uh, places like Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, we see in the case of Cuba that Biden has not only continued to uh, carry out the 200-plus extra sanctions imposed by Trump, uh, but just this week has added more sanctions against Cuba. So the right-wing resurgence is not only coming from uh, those elements inside the uh, the countries themselves, but it's coming from within the United States. Now, this region kind of flies below the radar in terms of popular attention. Is that because of the fixation that we've been in in this country over ISIS and protecting U.S. allies in that region of the world? Well, that's true, certainly, to um, uh, a, a large extent that the U.S. government has been more fixated with uh, the Middle East and now with building up towards a, uh, in this adversarial relationship with both China and Russia uh, has allowed Latin America to take more of its own course. Um, but I do go back to cautioning about that because um, we do have a very reactionary policy in this administration uh, when it comes to Latin America. Uh, and uh, the uh, U.S. attention of the American people is not on uh, these issues because you barely hear about it in the U.S. media. In fact, you barely hear about anything international in the U.S. media uh, but what that means is that it's hard to build up support. And so what we have is a very fragmented um, solidarity movement that might be on one particular country, on Brazil, on Honduras, on Cuba, for example. Uh, but what used to exist uh, decades ago, which is a broader-based U.S. solidarity movement for uh, progressives in Latin America, has really been very diffused. And I think it's important to build that up um, so that we have people in the United States uh, who can be uh, going down to elections as observers, as we as Code Pink have been doing in many of these cases, uh, can report firsthand and have a community back home in the United States that will uh, be eager to hear that information and act on it in terms of pressuring our Congress people as well as our administration uh, to not back coups and to stay out of the internal affairs of the countries of the region. Is there an indifference among some of the Caribbean countries toward the Latin American movement because of the language differences, French and English, as opposed to Spanish, which is the majority of uh, South America? Or is there an indifference or is there a solidarity? 
Actually, there's a lot of solidarity from the Caribbean countries, CARICOM, uh, towards the progressive movements in Latin America. And this has been one of the reasons that uh, some of the worst uh, 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 measures introduced in the OAS have not passed because of the uh, solidarity of Caribbean countries. Um, and uh, I think it would be um, a very welcome initiative to many countries in the Caribbean to have strong uh, international organization that doesn't include the United States, which bullies so many of the Caribbean countries when they want to take independence, uh, because many of them do get, uh, quote, aid from the U.S. government. Uh, but there is a lot of solidarity and I think uh, a lot of um, sense of gratitude among progressives in many nations in Latin America for the support they get from the Caribbean countries in places like the OAS. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, Women for Peace, thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much, Eskia. Good talking to you. Last week, Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald made a rare move to hold the parents of Michigan school shooting suspect Ethan Crumbly accountable for their son's actions when he opened fire at Oxford High School. Ethan Crumbly had already been charged last Wednesday as an adult with one count of terrorism causing death, four counts of first-degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony. And on Friday, at a press conference, Linda McDonald made this announcement. While the shooter was the one who entered the high school and pulled the trigger, there are other individuals who contributed to this to the events on November 30th, and it's my intention to hold them accountable as well. It's imperative we prevent this from happening again. No other parent or community should have to live through this nightmare. I have shared previously, and I will reiterate today, that gun ownership is a right, and with that right comes great responsibility. Based on the information and evidence I have received, today I am announcing charges against the shooter's parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly. The charges are as follows. James Crumbly is charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Jennifer Crumbly is also charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. McDonald went on to detail what led her to make this decision, which included their buying the gun used in the shooting and ignoring the signs that their son was in deep distress. And the issues raised by their behavior are hardly limited to what happened on November 30th. As Sue Goodwin reported in June 2020, gun sales are booming in the middle of this pandemic, meaning responsible gun ownership is ever more necessary. It's not unusual for gun sales to respond to current events, especially those that spark fear and uncertainty. Significant spikes took place after 9-11 and the Sandy Hook school shooting, for example. Heath Drusen is a reporting fellow with the Guns in America Reporting Project at Boise State Public Radio, and he says the coronavirus pandemic has clearly earned its place on the list of events that have boosted gun sales. 
So we're seeing some of the biggest increases ever, actually. We're talking um, numbers that are 85% over the same time last year in March. And then the last two months, it's 70, more than 70% uh, increase year over year. So these, these are really big, and gun industry analysts haven't seen these kinds of jumps since 2016. There was a run-up to the, uh, the 2016 election when a lot of folks thought that Hillary Clinton was going to become president, and gun owners were worried that there was going to be gun control passed. So there was sort of a stockpiling effect then. So this is obviously driven by different fears, but we're seeing the same kind of jumps. Speaking in just raw numbers, Americans bought more than 1.7 million firearms in May, according to estimates from the industry analyst Small Arms Analytics and Forecasting. Heath Drusen has been working through their data, and he says there is much more to learn than just how many guns America is buying. The big thing that jumped out was that handgun sales were the real driver. And the ratio of handguns to so-called long guns, basically long guns being rifles, shotguns, those kinds of things, it was almost two to one. And handguns are obviously much more of a self-defense weapon. So that was something that really jumped out. And then the other thing was that a large percentage of the buyers were first-time gun buyers. While there were plenty of folks who owned guns who bought more guns, there were a ton of people who were buying guns for the first time, which you know might be an indication that there's more widespread fears among people and not just sort of the usual suspects you think might be skeptical of the government or gun hobbyists anyway. In other words, a new market for guns is blossoming. So what does it take for someone who may have never considered themselves to be the type of person to own a gun to reverse course. Heath Drusen's reporting led him to find out more about what kind of fear people have during this pandemic. There is a lot of fear out there. People are concerned about unrest. They're concerned about a breakdown in government services, including emergency services. They're worried that if there's some kind of local unrest or rioting that help won't be on the way. And then there's also sort of the opposite concern that you do get from more uh, anti-government kind of people and groups where they're worried that the government's going to come down hard and there's going to be government overreach. And, you know, this is an old concern of people on the far right that they need to defend themselves against the government. So it's kind of an unusual mix of worry about too little or too much government. The data that Heath Drusen is looking at covers a time period during which the coronavirus firmly established itself as a pandemic in the U.S. Since that time, news about the murder of George Floyd swept over the nation and along with that massive protests against police brutality. Heath Drusen says it's too early to know how these events will impact gun sales, but he is expecting they will. Right. So we're um, a couple weeks away from being able to get data, but industry watchers that I've talked to are pretty confident that that is only going to continue to drive sales. So, so they, they do think that June is going to be another month where sales are, are very high and that 
seeing unrest across the country is just going to increase people's desire to purchase firearms. So we'll find out in early July when the FBI numbers come out, but there's definitely anticipation of a fourth straight big month for the gun industry. Now, even if the coronavirus were to fade away, and even if protests against systemic violence and police brutality happen less frequently, the fact that will remain is that there are just a lot more guns in circulation. So what does that mean from a public health perspective? Heath Jusen says the answer might be surprising to some. Um, Because a lot of people think of guns and they think of homicide and they think of mass shootings. But the, the biggest public health worry is actually suicide. That's by far the biggest source of gun deaths in America. And so when I talk to public health officials, their number one concern is that a surge in gun sales could lead to an increase in suicide. And increasing suicide has already been a huge problem for a number of years in the U.S. Um, There's been a really alarming trend, especially in, in states with higher gun ownership rates. So when I talk to doctors and public health researchers, they talk about the importance of taking proactive steps right now to try to reduce the potential harm that might come out of this surge in gun buying. Among the proactive steps that some states have put in place are what are known as red flag laws, or what are more formally known as extreme protection orders. They allow courts to issue orders to temporarily confiscate the firearms of individuals deemed to be a risk to others or themselves. There are several states that have red flag laws. It's not something where the police just come knock on your door and take away your guns. Generally, a loved one will report that you are in a crisis, and then it will go to a judge, and the judge makes a determination as to whether it is permissible to remove the firearms temporarily. Heath Drusen says several studies support the idea that red flag laws can help prevent firearm suicides. The problem is... Red flag laws are controversial, with critics arguing they violate the rights of the people whose guns are confiscated. Last month, Oklahoma became the first state in the country to pass an anti-red flag law. There are less controversial interventions that can work, such as more gun safety training, especially for first-time gun owners. But that's hard to do in the era of social distancing. Another measure is really quite simple but also effective given that many suicides result from an impulsive decision. What suicide prevention experts really encourage people to do is to keep firearms locked up, unloaded, separate from ammunition. And Mm -hmm. even just having that little bit of separation and that time to reflect can can actually make a a life and death difference. And, And that includes other people in the house. Kids figure out where your guns are. So... Uh, you got to think about everybody in your household and kind of how to keep the most separation between them and the firearm. Heath Drusen is a reporting fellow with the Guns in America Reporting Project at Boise State Public Radio. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. It's crunch time in Congress as lawmakers are trying to come together to deliver on a long to-do list. 
Instead of their usual winter recess, Congress members will likely be staying in chambers to work on raising the debt ceiling by December 15th or risk causing the country to default on its bills and working on part two of the president's Build Back Better agenda. Unlike other Christmas lists, the consequences of not delivering on these promises are very high political stakes. Last year at this time, reporter Amara Evering went into D.C.'s streets and asked everyday residents about their wish lists from the Biden administration for the holidays. As Congress continues a tradition of leaving some of the most important bills for the last minute, many Americans are now reflecting on what the Biden administration has delivered on in the past year. Here are what everyday people in D.C. last year before Biden was even inaugurated said were their hopes for the then upcoming administration. So, in the spirit of the song, 12 Days of Christmas, I asked people at Black Lives Matter Plaza, on Biden's first day in office, he should give to me... Housing for all. Student loan forgiveness. Put this country back on track. Literally. Literally. For all the Washingtonians, I think he should get back to all the school systems, recreation systems, the community. I feel as though we need to worry about what's going on in our city first. Start at ground zero and then expand out. I don't I don't walk into this administration with hope. I know many people that went to the polls and it was record breaking. Many of us on the ground helped get those people to the polls because when things were on fire in Minneapolis, when many cities were in an uproar, we motivated folks to get up and do something about it. That include challenging folks to think about the role of policing in our society, including the phrase that they want to trash now, defund the police. I'm not saying defund the police, but I feel as though there should be different ways to execute in certain situations, as far as violence, the whole nine yard. The justice system need to be a little bit better. Justice for all them people that's been killed by the hands of the officers. More attention to countries in Africa who are making forward strides economically and more support for their efforts to bring peace to the continent. And though many had expressed their reservations about the new administration and their disappointment in the current one, in the true spirit of Christmas, some decided to sing what was on their list. So, people of D.C., on Biden's first year in office, he should give to you. Universal child care. Yay! <laughs> Medicare for all, tuition-free college, a Green New Deal, elimination of student loan debt, Elimination of medical debt, legalization of marijuana. <laughs> Public and private student loan forgiveness. A business stimulus package with tax relief. On Biden's first year in office, he should give to me a new climate policy. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Looking back at our hopes for the then-upcoming administration is bittersweet. Despite desires for policy that addresses systematic racism, our immigration system, and even student loans, the Biden administration has not substantially delivered on these campaign claims that energized many of us to go to the polls just a year ago. The truth is, 
Immigration law is pretty much the same as it was decades ago. Wide-scale student loan forgiveness has not been made into a reality. And despite some more investment in HBCUs, the increase in the child tax credit, and a racially diverse administration, things like substantial police reform and the long-awaited passage of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act quickly fell through, along with voting rights bills. But... Though many of our demands have yet to be met, that doesn't mean we should throw out our Christmas lists. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodman. I'm Askia Mohammed. Thank you for listening, and thanks for contributing. WPFW Washington and to WBAI New York.